Root Simple Podcast. Low tech, home tech. Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. In episode 25, Kelly and I discuss my visit to the California State Beekeepers Convention, and we talk about Kelly's disastrous day, our disastrous vegetable gardening, and our disastrous house cleaning. It's a season of disasters. It's a bit of a season of disasters, Kelly. And I have a cold. Kelly has a cold. So I sound a little funny, could be much worse, um, and Eric says I'm breathing heavily into the mic, so, you know, sorry about that. But that's okay. We're, we're forging like on. You're forging on. <laughs> okay. So you went off to the California State Beekeepers Convention yesterday while I stayed home clutching my Kleenex box, and though you are a beekeeper there, it sounds like there you were a stranger in a strange land. You keep bees differently than commercial beekeepers. Can you describe that difference? You know, it's interesting. Our first book, The Urban Homestead, has conventional beekeeping directions in it. And then our second book has completely contradictory directions in it. Did you notice that, Kelly? No. Did we change our mind? Yeah, we did change our mind. Making it has directions on basically no treatment, natural beekeeping, which is very different than conventional beekeeping. Beekeeping. Our first book was, we didn't talk about treatment, though. In the Not much. It's just a very brief description of beekeeping in it. and a, It was right as we were getting... Wait, it was before, actually. That, was, before. that was the issue. Before yeah, we we'd were, actually done we a We were just on. saying, hey, you should try this. Um, this is, some people do this. But we hadn't, and I think right, right as we were writing the book, we started, or just as we finished the book, we it started It was one of that. the few projects that we had not done uh, when we wrote the first book. And, but then we had we had we had, had some a lot more experience with it by the time we did the second book, thanks to a group in Los Angeles called the Backwards Beekeepers. And Who became the, our mentors. Yeah, with Kirk Anderson was the head of that that organization, and that method, you know, well, the conventional beekeeping basically the bees are kept on something called foundation, which is a pre-printed comb. It's is it. It's either made from wax or horribly plastic, actually. The, the bees don't really don't like the plastic. Like little they, plastic and given the choice, that they have to live in. Well, given the choice, they don't like the wax stuff either. The wax is made out of what kind of wax? Is it well, recycled? Well, that's another issue. It's recycled wax. Wax builds up pesticides. So it's one of the issues with, with doing that, in my opinion. And, you know, essentially the, the divide is between keeping bees in a kind of mechanistic way versus the way they keep themselves in nature. In nature, bees live in a usually a hollowed-out tree, a dark space, and they build their own comb. They hang down and build their own comb. They also are not treated in nature. Now, the past mm, couple decades have been pretty disastrous for beekeepers around the world, but especially in America, Things called uh, varroa mites, uh, small hive beetles are here now, American fowl brood. There's all kinds of, of diseases that, that beekeepers here have, have dealt with. And there's a kind of a, a sharp divide on how to deal with these pests. 
Conventional beekeepers use a lot of different chemicals to deal with all of these problems. And it's very complicated, uh, especially the varroa mite. Is, a mite is an insect. It's a, yeah, it's a parasite uh, that so latches on to the bees and, and can kill a hive easily. So they're trying to treat they mites treat them. with insecticides. With insecticides, yes. In a beehive. In a beehive. Hmm. And the insecticides have varying degrees of effectiveness, and you have to rotate through them. It's actually very complicated to to stay on top of it that Sounds way. Sounds kind of like chemotherapy. In a way, it, it's um, it, yeah, you can destroy the hive using those chemicals, right? Uh, but the conventional beekeepers would say that you need to do it if you want honey or pollination services and... You know, they think if you don't do it, it, it can uh, contaminate other nearby hives. So it's a, it's a complicated issue. Natural beekeepers on the other side of the spectrum think that you should not prop up hives. You should let them kind of survival the fittest is the mantra and let the hives themselves deal with it. And in fact, there are bee colonies that have resistance to these things. Because it's not uncommon for there to be some of these parasites in the hive, but the colony finds balance with them. Well, you know, the weak ones die out and the, the good ones propagate. They, they uh, you know, they swarm, they, they create new bees, new queens. And eventually the idea, the, the natural beekeepers think, is that the bees uh, will survive and, and learn how to deal with these problems. I mean, and they have been around for like, what, like 130 million years? A long time. And, you know, the, the thing is with this is that there's a very, of all the topics that we cover, I think this is actually the most controversial. And people outside of this very small beekeeping world don't know about this problem. I, I think the story in the news media is about colony collapse disorder. Uh, it's also occasionally the news will, you know, put on some idiot who overturns a hive and gets stung and that makes the news. But this divide between natural beekeepers and conventional beekeepers, I don't see, I, I haven't seen really any coverage of it. Not even in coverage of colony collapse disorder. Right. Not there's even no in a lot of the movies that are, I mean, there's so many bee documentaries. If you look at Netflix, there's like, it seems like there's a whole category of them. And I haven't seen any of them really deal with this divide. And and that's interesting because that, that divide seems to me to be kind of at the heart of the problem. But we can, we can come back to that. We later. can come back to that. It's, but it's a very, like I said, very contentious and there there's, doesn't seem to me to be any middle ground in this. Uh, very few people I've met will sort of entertain either idea. Uh, it's, it's a sharp divide. And, you know, it's often a divide between conventional, the conventional beekeepers at this convention, a lot of them, maybe a majority of them are professionals. These are people that have hundreds of hives and move them across the country for pollination services. That, that's the primary, I, I think, attendee of the convention I was at. I mean, this was a convention where they were, you know, one of the exhibitors was a forklift company. So this is not, you know, the, the, small the, the small backyard beekeeper. There were some backyard beekeepers How there. How many do you think of the backyard beekeepers are conventional? That's a really good question. And that gets into something I guess we, we can talk about now, but later on, which is that 
You know, the, the, the research on beekeeping is primarily geared towards the large commercial beekeepers. It's not about the small backyard beekeepers. So, you know, I'd have to look it up, but I haven't heard and I don't know. And I wouldn't be surprised if no one has done that study. Would It would be interesting to know um, how many conventional beekeepers versus natural beekeepers there are in this country. It's in, very in hard backyards. to say. Yeah, the, because I, everybody we know who's a beekeeper is a natural beekeeper. In L.A. In L.A., no, yeah. though you know the the state beekeeping organization has a chapter here, and I can guarantee you everyone in that chapter is a conventional beekeeper. They they treat, they have foundation, et cetera, et cetera. Well, most of the books that you find on beekeeping in the beekeeping section of your bookstore uh, are pretty conventional. Most are, yeah. And then there's even to make it even more complicated, there are natural beekeepers who treat with powdered sugar and things like this they, or, those are the people that sort of straddle a little bit they worry they worry about the mites they they you know there's so many details to beekeeping i suppose that it's hard for an outsider to understand it's not just about uh, what kind of foundation do you use and do you use chemicals or not but there's all sorts of stuff like do you requeen which is the process of assassinating an old queen and re- reproducing her uh, i mean replacing her with a Younger, Which is the conventional advice. Queen. The conventional but advice is to do woman, that. I don't like that idea very <laughs> <Right>. much. <laughs> but, um, you know, so being much more, the conventional beekeeping has a lot to do, without getting into tons of detail, with being much more interventionist in the day-to-day life exactly. of the beehive. Uh, kind of micromanaging it which involves inspecting the hives quite frequently, frequently. which is, you know, for bees, you, you could argue is disturbing. Uh, it doesn't seem to kill them or whatever, but they'll go into the hive and they will look at what the bees are doing and they will micromanage essentially within the hive right. and worry for the bees about things like, you know, do you have parasites? Is your queen producing enough? What's going on? Are you making enough honey? And then they will try to make adjustments around that. So the bees are I don't know, intensely managed, we'll say, whereas natural beekeepers... Uh, inspect much less frequently and uh, generally do not in- interfere with the bees' life cycles or the choices they make within the Sometimes. hive. Sometimes. I mean, there, there's, you a, could there's opt a to. Right. There's a bit of a spectrum. Uh, there's some that are totally non interventionist, and then there are some that do some manipulation. Mm-hmm. Um, Mikhail Thiel, who we profiled on the blog, is on the extreme non interventionist side of things. He's more of like a bee host. Right, whereas Michael Bush still doesn't do treatment. He tends not to use foundation, but he does some manipulation and inspection. Um, But he's still definitely on that non-interventionist side of the spectrum and is very different in his advice from the the mainstream advice on beekeeping. Now, let me me overlay yet another issue here Mm -hmm. that makes it even more complicated if it wasn't complicated enough, which is the feral bee issue. In Los Angeles, we're in Africanized honeybee territory. Now, the Africanized bees came to Brazil in the, I believe it was the 1950s. They got out. They were brought there to to basically to bring beekeeping to tropical areas. European honeybees don't do well in the tropics. They got out. They were super aggressive. They have moved their way 
north slowly over time. They are they they arrived here in the United States. I can't remember the exact year, the but 90s? it's been a yeah nineties or eighties. It's been a, it's been a long time now. But I'm sure everybody remembers the killer bee hysteria. Exactly in the movie The Swarm and all that. Uh, but they're here, and they're extremely controversial as well. Uh, some natural beekeepers keep Africanized bees rather quietly, I have to say. It's not something to talk about. Whereas the conventional advice, the standard beekeeping advice in uh, areas where there are Africanized bees, which is basically the southern half of the United States, Africanized bees don't do well in cold climates. So there's kind of a line across the United States. So most beekeepers in southern climates will order their bees from the north, from often northern California. So they're coming from up there, and that's the standard advice. And if you find, you know, if you capture a swarm down here or you take them out of a wall, the standard advice is to kill the queen and requeen it with a with a, a you buy a queen essentially from a from known stock. And that stock is European. I mean, bees, of course, are European. They're an import that European settlers brought over here. So these bees are from like Italian and German, right? Bee or, lines, Russian or, or Russian, and right. they're known for their gentleness. They tend to be more docile. They're However, docile. well, this is one of the controversial things because you know the thing about these feral bees, uh, Africanized bees, is that they have interbred as they've come north, and they're not as aggressive as the original bees that came to Brazil. And there's some thinking, some natural beekeepers think that they are more hardy. And, you know, the fact is that they've been living in walls and trees in the southern part of the United States now for several decades, and they have not been treated. You know, they have not been tended. And they're doing... And they're still around, right? I mean, I'm sure that when the mites came and when these other problems came, a lot of them died out, but the ones that didn't die out reproduced. So, I mean, just to be clear for people who might not understand, basically that means that any uh, feral bee that you find in our homeland of Southern California or anywhere across the South, the United States, uh, is is Africanized, technically. Well, you don't know, because it could be... Oh, they there could have swarmed European, out of a European you know, people hive. That, yeah, exactly. Keep European honeybees here, and they could have swarmed, and it, so it could be a European hive. The, the fact so, is, there's no way to know without doing DNA testing. They you look cannot alike. tell from appearance. Now, bees that, that are, are feral, that are not living uh, on pre-printed foundation with bread stock and things like that, also tend to be a little bit smaller, which is another thing that might make them hardier in terms of surviving some of these problems. At least that's, that's some thinking about them. The thing is, and the thing that's frustrating for me uh, at going to this convention is, which there was a lot of... Um, of uh, of research being presented. However, the research is again geared towards large commercial beekeeping. So these questions like, are the feral bees better stock or not? Are the feral bees aggressive or not? There is simply no science on it that I can find. Um, we should go back and say some of the some of the characteristics of the feral bees that we've noticed that differentiate them. You know, speaking of productivity and aggression. Well, they, this is anecdotal. I it's mean, anecdotal because it's just, there's no science, right? But it's just like what we've seen. What I've noticed. Heard. Now, I've removed quite a few hives now 
from houses in LA and relocated them to people that want them. So I've taken them out of walls. I've taken them out of uh, utility boxes. And I, at this point, it's been a couple of years now, and I've dealt with a lot of them. And of all those hives I've encountered, I've encountered a few aggressive ones. However, the aggressive ones, you know, one aggressive one was um, it had been overturned by a bear. <laughs> and it had been spread, the, the hive boxes was, were spread all over the It was rather ground, upset. And it was angry. It chased me to the car. But um, <laughs> I was able to go back at night and put them boxes back together. And they calmed down immediately. We moved them out of where the bear was was um, going after them. I've also had uh, experienced hives that, that I've moved to other places that were aggressive initially. And then I gave them an extra box. So I gave them some more room. And they also calmed down. Now, it's not to say there aren't aggressive hives out there. But, you know, there's aggressive European hives, too that will chase you. And uh, I think that there is a certain amount of, especially with urban beekeeping, there's a responsibility issue here is we, we can't be keeping aggressive hives in the city. So I have no problem with, you know, you put down a hive that's, that's super aggressive. But in all the hives that I have dealt with now, and there's been a lot in, in moving them, I haven't had one that's been, that I would call super aggressive. I mean, to be fair, I think if we had a conventional beekeeper sitting in my chair, I, I think they would argue that they are much more aggressive. The ones I've dealt with, you know, I actually had the experience recently for the first time to deal with a European colony from bread stock. And you could have opened the box with uh, shirts, you know, short sleeves and a T-shirt on and opened them up and moved them around. And it was they were extremely docile. The, the bees, the feral ones that I've dealt here have, have been, I would still call them docile. You know, they're not, it's not like a horror movie or something where they all come out. But there's always one guard bee that pings the veil, you know, that probably if you didn't have the veil on would sting you. I mean, when you work with our local bees, you, you wear a full bee suit and you wear a veil and you wear gloves. Right. I mean, you don't screw around with them. You don't take their docility for granite because they they are a little more hard-edged i think than than the the soft european bread bees well but again they don't chase you that hasn't been my experience that they chase you or that they, it would be irresponsible to have them and in chase fact you as a swarm right or it would come out well, those, not yeah, as a come swarm out as but a they'd come out and well you know. i mean you know uh, guard bees will chase you yeah but not like in huge numbers or yeah. something. And again, there's no, I, I, I had this kind of um, heated exchange with the UC, uh, Dr. Eric Moosen, who's the UC entomologist, kind of heated the top on, B online guy. online exchange. Online exchange with him where he had said, oh, you know, these feral bees, we can't keep them. They're terrible, et cetera, et cetera. In an article he was quoted and I wrote him and I said, you know, where's your peer-reviewed evidence for this? And he said, there's no evidence for it. I don't have any. And I asked him, well, do you have a test for this? And he wasn't able to answer that question. I, I Digging through some of the minutes of the Beekeeping Association, I figured out that they're trying to come up with a test to, to test for this. For To, to test if they're Africanized? Or no, not, not that's done with DNA testing. No, to test if they're aggressive or not. Kind oh, like of aggression a, tests? Like yeah, poke them and see what happens? Right, exactly. <laughs> kind of a, a way to measure that. Because it's very... It's very subjective. Mm -hmm. And it's variable. 
I mean, it's variable. Extremely variable. You can't I mean, make any generalization uh, from hive to hive with feral bees about of, how of, they will. And then from well, season to season and from day to day and hour to hour, it would be a very difficult test, I think, to deliver fairly. I mean, I want to be abundantly clear. Of course, especially in the city, and it, it goes actually commercial beekeepers would not want to keep hives where you knock on them and the whole hive comes out and wants to sting you. I'm not suggesting that anyone keep bees like that. However, there's a there's a huge degree of difference between that and a colony that sends out one or two guard bees when you open it, but that also might have significant genetic advantages if you keep them. In other words, they're resistant to all these problems, so you don't have to treat them with all this stuff. And that's the issue for me and yeah, with I mean, the feral bees. It's a slight trade-off to make. Now... One other thing that kept coming up at the convention, which which bugged me, was that <laughs> bugged is that the right word? Mm. Bugged me. Was that you know is this this refrain of oh you can't keep these feral bees because they're going to contaminate my bees you know because you're not treating them they're feral they're going to contaminate my special bees that I treat constantly those dirty African right bees. they're going to contaminate with varroa or with any of the other you name the other disease. I have to, uh, this, that's a quote from someone we heard in a bee shop that he called the African bees dirty African bees. That's not my phrasing. Yeah, which... Which is problematic. Which ra it raises some, yeah. Questions. Some symbolic... Questions about, like, why, you know, what is this? Well, thing? it's this idea of purity. Yeah, racial, racial purity amongst the bees. It is. Oh. And what's absurd about <laughs> it is that I can guarantee you, well, of course, I don't know for sure... I don't have any evidence to back this up, but I'm pretty sure that most of the bee colonies in Los Angeles are not tended by anyone. You know, one of the colonies that I removed from a uh, kitchen vent had been in that house for 10 years. And there was another colony in the same house that had been there for 15 years. And what happens is you have, you know, typically elderly people or people who can't afford to keep up their house or an apartment building where no one cares or the bees are living in a wall or that's a bunch way of, up. Like junk in the backyard. Yeah, or a hoarder or something. So there are all these colonies. I don't know how many per square mile I mean, in LA because LA is bee paradise, right? Because it doesn't freeze here. It's sunny year round. And there's all these colonies that are living in walls that no one tends at right all next that have been to there us. for decades decade maybe hundreds of years and there really. are people you, being you, you killed think, left and right up and down our neighborhoods here but it, there are african bees everywhere it's extreme right so they're every africanized africanized it, different yeah they're everywhere so this argument that somehow we need this kind of purity is is absurd to me because they're out there anyway so what are you going to do about it you know the drones are out there mating and doing their thing so it's just it they're here there's no way, other way to deal with it. you might as well work with them and you might as well teach people to tend them like that's what you want you want people who know how to remove them from walls who can look after them responsibly who can on a neighborhood level on a neighborhood level you know not who the, don't i mean i don't keep aggressive bees but i don't know anyone who keeps aggressive bees no one would want to do that in their backyard it's, you couldn't be able you wouldn't be able to go out in the backyard if you did that so to me this is not a, it's it's a there's something else going on with this issue and and it's it's uh it, it's irrational to me well so okay so at the uh 
at the conference, what kind of things did you learn? Well, I, you know, I shouldn't be completely negative. There was a kind of detente that was was going on. I mean, uh, the State Beekeepers Association invited uh, Ruth Askin and Honey Love to do a panel discussion and to talk about urban beekeeping and to talk about some of these issues. And that's that's a good thing. I think that um, that's a good sign that, that we can have, that we could start this dialogue. Um, and... You know, so again, I I I and I want to I want to be clear too that the commercial beekeepers have had horrible couple decades. They've been dealing with all these problems. Their primary income source is pollination services, not not honey. And they move these bees across the country, and it's becoming more and more expensive to do that and uh, difficult. And they've lost a lot of bees. And what may have been a a lucrative business at one time is no longer. Let's go backwards and break that down because this is another thing that most people don't know about is is the pollination service industry, um, how the bees are kept and transported, and then maybe how that hooks into some of the health problems that the hives have been having. So let's start with pollination services. I guess, what what are pollination services? Well, for instance... All those almonds in California need to be pollinated by bees. So, you know, the convention was in some ways less a beekeeping convention than a how to support the almond industry convention, because that's what beekeepers do in California is they pollinate almonds. almonds. And then the bees are moved to uh, the Dakotas where they live there on the the things that are blooming for a while. And then some of them are moved to Florida to pollinate citrus. Some go to Michigan, Wisconsin for blueberries. Some go to Maine. They're shipped all around the country. So they're like rock stars, sort of. They, they're they always on their tour bus and going kind around. kind of strung out, though, because kind of bees out. don't like to be moved. You can't. I've never thought In that you could. In my humble opinion. <laughs> you know, until I heard about this, I didn't know you could move bees around like that, that they would reorient in all these different locations as they're put on tour and move from one work site to the next. So the difficult question we have to ask is, is this a sustainable system? Are we doing this for the sake of the bees, or are we doing this to prop up this massive monoculture of almonds in California? Which the question is, is that something that, that can kept, be kept doing? You know, well, can you keep so doing many- that? It's just it's like layer after layer after layer of things to unpack in, in this bee industry. I mean... First of all, there's like just at a base level, why do we need to import, you know, hundreds of hives of bees into the Central Valley to hundreds, thousands, thousands, and thousands, and thousands, 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 like truckloads yeah. of hives go into the Central Valley during the sp- season when the almonds are blooming spring. in the spring, early spring. Now in the Central Valley, you know, there's thousands of consecutive acres dedicated solely to Almond trees. If you've Giant never monocrop, you've never been to the Central sucks Valley. Sucks a lot of water it's, too. Uh, yeah, there's a water issue as well. But the Central Valley is. God, it's, it's an it, ecological disaster. It's, it is an Let's ecological disaster. It. It's it's depressing to but, go through there. It's all about monocropping of different sorts, and the I could go on about it forever. It's a basically if if things are not being actively tended, the fallow fields don't even support weeds. It's just like a dust bowl waiting to happen. But it's, in fairness, it also feeds the world. Too. Well, it feeds 8%. Uh, it's Actually, I looked it up. It's 8% of, um, of the United States 
um, produce comes out of the uh, Central Valley. And some things like almonds. It's basically all all the almonds. almonds. A lot of very important crops that we love, like our almonds and our grapes and avocados and things like that. But it is... um, I, when I go through the valley, I imagine that that's what purgatory looks like, and especially in the drought now where everything is stressed and dry. It is not a happy farm place of your imagination. It is a densely industrial, dark place, really. And and as a as a shorthand way to illustrate that, you can say, you know, why are the bees brought in to pollinate the almond trees? And it's because there are no bees which just live in the valley well, there's even no though there's, habitat there's no habitat for pollinators of any sort in now the in valley. fairness they were talking about that at the meeting well finally <laughs> no i think they've been in fairness too they've been talking about that for a long time but i mean there's just this commonsensical idea that you know maybe there should be some vacant lots or hedgerows that have some pollinating plants that grow on them year round i mean the thing is that in the spring whatever the month the blooming month for the almonds is there's plenty for the bees to eat and plenty for them to do and the rest of the year it is barren it is a barren wasteland it cannot support a bee so the bees have to be transitory but i still think there's a problem in the way the discussion was framed so for instance they were talking about that they were talking about which is essentially a hedgerow of having things that are that the bees can eat when the, the almonds aren't there. And they were also talking about using native pollinators too, like the Instead blue, of mason bee blue mason bee yeah. and other, other um, native bees. Now, but here's the thing, though, is that the framing of those discussions were still on how do we keep the giant almond system propped up. So those mason bees... It was all about how do we do it in mass? How do we breed them in mass? How do we replace the bees with them or supplement the bees with them to keep the system propped up? And the question still remains, is this, you know, it works great now, no doubt about it. We have lots of almonds. For not all that much money. But is this something that we'll be doing 500 years from now? <laughs> something we'll be doing 10 years from now. 10 years from now, I mean, exactly. you, go through the, you go through there and you see a lot of almond groves now that have been chopped down because they can't afford to water them. It kind of, it gets us into Nassim Taleb territory, risk management territory of, you know, Taleb talks a lot about the mistake of of these systems where you put all your eggs in one basket, where one country grows all the grapes or one, one state grows all the almonds, and you're setting yourself up for what he calls, well, what, what basically is fragility. You know, one, one little thing goes wrong, like you get these bee diseases, and it has an out-of-proportion uh, effect, a black swan event is what he would call it, where some unlikely thing causes the whole thing to to crash suddenly. And he would probably say that we have a system here that's set up for that kind of sudden catastrophic disaster where, you know, likely, you know, in all likelihood, it'll it'll lumber on for quite a long time, but you're setting yourself up for this. When it falls, it will fall When it falls, it falls big. I mean, I think that's what we're seeing right now with the problems that beekeepers are having with colony collapse disorder. And I don't want to paint the um, beekeepers so much as the bad guys. Perhaps we can see them as as um, victims of or servants to the monocultural almond industry, you know, which really calls the tune and they have to dance. But 
still what you end up doing to support this this kind of crazy system um, is to treat the bees in ways that nature never meant them to be treated. So it means you know, loading them onto semis. It means feeding them in betwixt pollination gigs with pure corn syrup. Well, and therein is the is the problem. I think it's a philosophical problem. Is the bees are a cog in a machine? They're not seen as you know as the as a as a as the complex adaptive system that they are. I mean, this is a this is an opportunity for systems theory. The you know the Gaia hypothesis here. The bees are just. Treat it as a machine. I mean, you know, it's it's ironic that the the most popular hive, the Langstroth hive, is invented in the nineteenth century, and it is essentially a machine for bees. It, it has little like, parts. That it looks come kind out. of like a, filing, a cabinet. filing cabinet. Filing cabinet for bees. It keeps bees organized where we want them to be, and easy to move around, easy to shuffle. You can shuffle a Langstrom hive like a like a deck of cards, sort of like you go here, you go here, you go here. You know, no matter what the bees want. And all the treatments, too, are like greasing the little gears in the machine. So the bees are seen as like a productive insect, an insect that makes money, essentially, that, that provides... That makes certain, almonds. It's an insect that makes almonds, yeah, as opposed to these kind of miraculous... As part of a system, part of a larger system. Yeah, a cog in that larger system. And it's sort of a problem that needs to be ma managed. You know, the, the bees have to be taken from here to there. The bees have to be fed because they can't feed themselves. The bees... Oh, no, now the bees are sick. Now they need to be treated. So what, what's happening is that bees are getting weaker and weaker because they're being, because they're being well, abused, essentially. I mean, no bee would, would choose to live the way they live. And, and, you know, they are propped up chemically and in biologically. So they, the stocks are not strong. You know, it's, right. it's like, at, and then so then people say, well, why is this colony collapse disorder happening? Well, you know, maybe we don't know all the answers, but I can say it's not hard to knock over a bowling pin that's already wobbling. I mean, these, these bees are not strong. And, you know, I don't see um, the feral bees succumbing the way the managed bees do. And there's the other problem, big ag science. You know, the, the science is in support of growing all those almonds. And if you look at all the research that I saw at this conference, that's the, the orientation. It's not, it's not the health of the bees, and I think therein is the problem. Now, I want to be clear, in that system, that big system that is nature, we are a part of it, and we need to eat. And so we're a factor in this, too. And so I understand there's a dance between the needs of the bees and our needs for honey and our needs for pollination. So it's it's a complicated issue. But I don't think this highly reductionist approach or, you know, frankly, some of the ad hominem attacks on natural beekeeping that I saw at the conference is helpful. Now, again, on the other hand, they invited a natural beekeeper today, and that's a good thing, and they invited um, Honey Love, and there was a there was a conversation. And so hopefully that's the beginning. And I hope that conversation will continue. And I think, and also, it's it's the kind of thing that can only be solved, but you know, kind of from the bottom up. And you, know, the, it would be fantastic if there was a detente between the different kinds of beekeepers, and we can share and learn and uh, from one another. But basically, at the root of this, the whole problem is industrial agriculture and the demands of industrial agriculture. But in terms of that bottom-up approach, I think there's an opportunity for citizen science here, too. If we can 
somehow as backyard beekeepers put aside our differences and keep some records and coordinate and figure out some of these issues, figure out a way to judge how aggressive a hive is or how healthy they are or how much honey they produce, that kind of thing, and and figure out some of these issues on our own. That might be a real big and important contribution. And we've seen, you know, actually there was the Sunflower Project, which was looking at pollinators. And we've seen a couple of citizen science projects involving pollinators that have been really popular and really successful. And maybe there's a way to expand that and um, do some more with that. Yeah. Mm. Let's let's end on that hopeful note. That's hopeful because all, all I can see in my mind's eye is the Central Valley and it makes me want to cry. It's a thorny problem for sure. Oh, man. Okay, oh. moving on to disasters. Oh, no. Things just get more depressing. Well, oh. this is funny, though. Kelly oh. had, while I was at the beekeeping convention, Kelly had a disastrous day and the cold. Yeah, well, it's because I had a cold, I think, that... You know, one should learn when you have a cold just to take it easy. But I didn't feel all that bad. Uh, and I was restless. Um, but I was stupid. See, this is a thing. For sometimes when I'm getting a cold, it seems like the first thing to go is my brain. And I don't really understand that mechanism, but it was, it was in effect. So I was ambitious yet stupid. Well, as I was leaving, you, you said you wanted to strip the paint off the cabinet in the bathroom and I thought you're crazy you don't want to do that when you have a cold <laughs> I really did and it's I still want job. to it's a horrible job it's this project that's been waiting waiting to be done it's one of those awful projects around the house that you don't want to do yet every time you look at it it bothers you this is a, our we have a cabinet in the bathroom that I had painted a couple years ago repainted and I although I thought I did all my due diligence with the painting, you know, in terms of prepping properly before I put on the paint, there's something either wrong with my prep or something wrong with the paint because it immediately started to come off the minute I painted it. So if it's like if you touch this cabinet, it leaves a mark and the cats scratch it and but every time you open and close a door, you vacuum, you bump up against it, paint falls off and the paint is blue and the undercoat is white, so it's quite obvious and it just looks awful. And so I, I've been meaning to do it, but I've never had the heart to do it. And then all of a sudden, I'm, though I'm sick, I'm like, that task, that I could do today. Because I just feel, I don't know, confined enough and there's nothing else that I want to do. I, I want to scrape that paint down. Because with the failure of the top coat, all I, all I can do reasonably is is scrape the paint off. Because I know if I add another layer of paint to it, it'll just scratch off in the same way. So it's a terrible, a terrible uh, thing to face, but that whole thing needs to be taken down to wood, essentially. And of course, it's lead paint at the bottom because it's such an old house and it's a mess. But yeah, as Eric left for his beekeeping thing, I was like, yeah, I'm going to strip this cabinet. Um, and so I empty the whole bathroom, everything, because because it, it got of the of the lead and the mess, everything had to get out. So I emptied the entire bathroom, all the cabinets. And it's everything. like 15 years worth of expired moisturizer or something <laughs> in the living room now. <laughs> There's many baskets of 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 um, you know odd things. Uh, it's not that bad, but I am going to go through it um, and get rid of some of the old stuff. Uh, um, a lot of half bottles of shampoo is really what we've got. But so I empty, empty the bathroom. I take all the hardware off of everything. It's amazingly tedious. Finally, I get going. You know, I lock the cats out. I spread the plastic. I start. And we've got this thing 
that strips paint. So instead of doing chemical stripping... What is it called? The silent stripper? It's called the silent stripper. That sounds like a... Well, does she work at Jumbo's Clown Room? I, don't... I think the silent stripper is very evocative and, you I think know, it's actually not called necessarily... the silent paint remover, not yeah. the silent stripper. I which like... is, it's a, if I, am I correct? It's a Swedish paint remover. It's some, some Scandinavian paint remover. I, I bought this device many years ago now to take the paint off of the outside of the house, which was a heinous job. And this device is um, really pretty cool. It's a heat kind of like a fluorescent lamp heat gun thing and the, the it looks like a point, lamp it's it's square it's not like a gun shape the selling point though is that it is uh, a temperature that is low enough so that it doesn't vaporize lead paint because we don't want to vaporize lead paint so that was a selling point with it it it's, was expensive it was very expensive it was totally worth it because i use it to remove the paint from the house and you you hold it up to the paint and it comes off. It's like a heat gun, but it doesn't it, work as fast. It's like as that. takes thirty seconds of it sitting on the like uh, near. Well, it has it does like a foot by four inch strip at a time. Yeah, basically. and it has it has kind of like a foot so that it doesn't. It's not right on the paint. It's above the paint a couple of inches, and you leave it there for like thirty seconds. And then when you take it off, it's all bubbly underneath, and then you go in with a scraper and you scrape. So I start scraping the drawer faces. And on my second drawer, somehow in my foggy headedness, I uh, knock it off. Like it's 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 sitting doing its thirty second cook, and I knock it off the drawer, and it falls like a foot or so to the bathroom floor, which is tile, and one of the bulbs breaks. A forty dollar bulb. So yeah, I go then I go out and look in the internet. I find the bulb is forty dollars, and the shipping is twenty five dollars, mm-hmm. and it's going to be five working days before it will be here. So I'm looking at a week now, uh, and so now the bathroom is all screwed up, and the living room is full of the bathroom stuff, and I'm sick, and the, my project is nowhere, is not, did not move along at all. And even once the thing comes, then I still have to strip the whole thing, and then I still have to sand the whole thing, and then I still have to paint the whole thing. So it's like we're not going to have our bathroom back for two weeks, I'm thinking now, all because I was too stubborn to not just like take it easy when I was sick. And yeah. So, and so so after I broke the bulb, <laughs> I went up I went fluttering about on other business and so uh, Eric had the car, I couldn't go anywhere or anything. So I I uh, made some bee beans and I managed to burn them. They, and they were, were very good though. They were very the top part was very good. I made spicy mayacopa beans, which is uh, the recipes on the blog. We'll link to that. Uh, I love these beans. Uh, and, and I made a perfect pot and a really extra large pot. I was like, oh, I'm going to make a ton of beans so that, um, you know, we'll have some, maybe I'll freeze some. So I make this huge pot of beans. They are perfect. And then I decide, uh, I, so I finish them. I let them cool. I was going to put them away. Then I decided I wanted some. So I turned the heat back on to heat them up so I could have some as a snack. Wandered away. I think I started watching the internet or something. Forgot about it until I smelled it burning. And then I had to go back in and I had to rescue like the top half off the pot because the bottom was all burnt. That is bean fail. Then I also had an assignment from Eric that day. We were testing a new kind of bread a bread recipe, and he had done the initial ferment, and I had been in charge of doing um, stretch and fold on it, which is sort of what you how you need when you don't need, and you're doing no-need bread. So I'd been do- dutifully doing my stretch and fold activities, 
on the hour. And then the la after the last stretch and fold, I was supposed to shape the loaf and put it in a pan to rise and then bake it uh, two to four hours later once it had risen enough. And I, I was very proud. I successfully got it into the pan in a decent shape because I'm not the baker in the house. I'm the cook. But I was doing a good job. And then, of course, I promptly forgot about the bread entirely with all the excitement with the bulb and the beans. I just forgot. So when Eric got home, he ran straight to the kitchen to see how the bread came out and found the grossly overproofed bread oozing all over <laughs> its container, uh, you know, and then he cried out in dismay. And I had I a little temper, I, not a temper tantrum. I just had a kind of a breakdown, actually more because I wanted to eat some bread because then I needed to go to the Y, which was, you know. Well, Eric had been at the B convention, which made him cranky. And then he had to go to the Y. And if he doesn't go to the Y to exercise, get he gets cranky. really cranky. And if he doesn't eat, he gets really cranky. And so he was cranky. So I told him just to get the hell out of here and go to the Y and leave However, him However, you know, you bake the bread and actually it turned out really nice. It, it, it was fine for being a, Here's overproofed. the thing with that. I was actually kind of glad you overproofed it in the end because I'm going to teach this bread over the weekend and I like to teach things where even if people overproof it or make some mistakes, it still comes out nice. And that's that's one of the reasons why Lately, when I've been teaching bread classes, rather than shape have people shape them into boules or batards or, God forbid, a baguette, which is very difficult to do, I just have them put it in uh, a bread pan and bake it that way. And that way, even if you overproof the, the, the dough, it still comes out. It actually comes out, you know, a little extra sour, which I kind of like. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and this was a recipe that I basically based on a Josie Baker recipe. It was I like a up, whole wheat with cranberries and almonds. Very good. I or, the, not up, almonds. <laughs> right. I, uh, walnuts. I upped the hydration a little bit, add a little more water to it, and uh, it, it turned out real nice, actually. Yeah, it was it was good. So it's not quite a fail. Not but a total it, disaster. Yeah. But anyway, there was bread fail, bean fail, and bathroom fail. And the loss of the silent stripper. Uh, yes. sounds and like the a tawdry novel. Is, we silenced kind. the silent stripper. Yeah, the silent stripper could be a, uh, yeah, a noir novel. Meanwhile, I noticed last night that skunks completely dug up the entire backyard. Uh, they, 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 had, they had like out, a skunk party. They took out every single vegetable that you planted. There was none left. Well, that happened long ago. I mean, anything that was growing in there at this point is like, that was just all kind of feral because I'd, I'd washed my hands of the beds. We should, so readers will remember that in the spring or last, when was it? Last spring. Yeah. Eric was obsessed with the skunks and at war with the skunks. And we thought we had, we had finally fenced well, them fenced out. Off, fenced that, them that, out. That was, uh, but we were wrong. Nature wins again. Thinking. Root nature simple wins. zero, nature yeah. 15. I mean, I swear this happens over and over again. So we, uh, you know, between efforts to seal off the yard and to uh, building raised beds with netting around them, we thought when we started our winter garden this year that things were going to be great. And I was in charge of this one, uh, and I planted a bunch of stuff, and I had all these little seedlings coming up just beautifully. And then one morning I go out, and I find it's all gone. It's all gone. The skunks or possums, I think the skunks, have realized that you know, the netting, the netting, you know, put them off for they've a little actually, bit. They've actually figured out the netting, which they is kind of interesting. The net, they learned how to claw open the netting. You know, they just ripped through it like speaking Wolverine. Of, speaking of complex adaptive systems, maybe this is the way to, to wrap it up because it is interesting that they've learned that because mm -hmm. um, we have other, we've had, the, we've done the bird netting thing for a long time and it worked, but it, it no longer works. 
Yeah, interesting, huh? So we lost our winter garden. I mean, and at this point, it's just too late to start because we're too close to the solstice. There's not enough daylight hours to really get things going. I think we can still get it going. But. Uh, I think it's just at this point, it's just better to wait till just after the holidays and then start over. I, you know, so here we are. Everybody's like, oh, you know, it's simple. They're urban farmers. You know, I hate the term urban farmer. Yeah, we're, not the way, farmers. we're not we're, farmers. We're gardeners. gardeners. We're like yeah. frustrated gardeners, like 90% of the other rest of gardeners are frustrated and and here we are we we are growing no food right now the other the perennials are doing pretty well and the herbs and such and the worms and the chickens but then you know but not the vegetables so we are back to the drawing board with skunk proofing systems thinking about everything from electric wires to those water shooter things to enclosure systems i really don't know what we're going to do but yeah, wind so chimes hooked up to wires, people and pulleys, all kinds of wind chimes. There's just a billion things ideas. we could just turn our backyard into like a festival of crazy, trying to keep like one skunk and one possum at bay. Hire a much. security guard is what I say. Yeah, maybe that's the probably the easiest thing to do. <laughs> I don't, you know, or get a dog. Oh, things God. have been worse since our dog died. You know. But then the dog digs up things, too. So he, but he never went after the vegetables. A, he got skunked once in a while. It's kind of a lateral move, in my humble opinion. I don't think so. I think a dog would be a positive mood. Well, we uh. argue about that. Mm. And then, of course, the cleaning is devolved, and the kitchen goods are all over the... Or the bathroom goods are all over the living room. So Yeah, last, last time we talked, um, you know, I, I mentioned that, you know, our cleaning routine had fallen by the wayside, and... and and I asked Eric, you know, on online here, you know, well, when are we going to start that again? And Eric said, oh, soon, soon. And I did get some feedback after our last one that people said that Eric sounded less than sincere in his promise to start <laughs> to start Perhaps. cleaning again soon, start the program, the cleaning protocol uh, once more. I I actually have to say I miss the cleaning protocol. I sort of look at it wistfully. It's it's on our calendar, like what we're supposed to do each day. And I look at that task wistfully, but I'm too cantankerous to do it by myself. And Eric hasn't been around to do it, or he's very busy or very cranky or whatever, doesn't want to clean. And so I'm blaming it all on you. This is basically, this is the art, the, the squalor that we're living in right now. It's all your fault. Thank you. <laughs> Um, if anybody comes over, this is Eric's fault. I just, you know, I just try to tread, keep us above water, and and I have a cold. Back to the skunks, though. You know what? It's getting dark, and it's time to lock the chickens up. Mm. Oh, yeah. I think that means we have to close. All right. Closing with the daytime. We actually have some guests booked, finally. I have some guests booked. We're going to talk about bikes, ho- hopefully, with uh, Colin Bogart of the LA Bike Coalition this week. And then we also are going to talk to a biochar expert. Uh, Thank you, Max Morgan, by the way. Thank you, Max, both for the biochar expert and for tipping me off to the beekeeping convention. And then Shannon Hayes of, well... Radical Home... Radical Home Home Economics. Economics. I was going to say homesteading, but no. Radical Homemaking. Homemaking. Radical Homemaking. This week after we'd wrapped our conversation, I realized that we hadn't made a few things clear, so I asked to add these endnotes. When Eric and I do a podcast together, the chatty kind, where we just, uh, just we two talk about something or another, there's a problem, a couple problem. We've been together for about 20 years now, uh, so we have couple brain. And in podcast terms, this means that when we speak, 
Our speech is all formed out of many layers of underlying assumptions and shared understandings built up over the years. And the problem is that our audience doesn't share our data bank. And it would be better in some ways if we knew each other less well or had more oppositional opinions, because then we would have to really lay out our thinking in ways which would be more informative to the audience. And we're going to try to be better about that from now on. Now, underlying our discussion about bees and their place in industrial agriculture uh, was our belief in the sacred nature of bees, and we didn't make that clear. And, and that might sound like we're bee worshippers or something, but rather it means that we recognize, both on a personal level and on a historical level, that bees have always been more than bugs to humans. They are deeply intertwined with human culture across the globe in a way that very few other animals are. The cow, perhaps, comes to mind, and our hearth friends, the cat and the dog. But there's nothing cozy and domestic about the bees. They have been associated with heady attributes, such as poetic inspiration and prophecy and rebirth and death and the structure of right-functioning societies. And then on a, a purely practical level, they give us gifts like no other creature. They give us sugar, the only taste of sweetness that the people of the Northern Hemisphere were able to access for millennia. They give us light, the best kind of candlelight, sweet and bright and smokeless. And wax has many other uses from writing tablets to cosmetics. And finally, they give us honey and prophylis, which are both powerful medicine. Oh, and of course, they make the world fruitful via pollination. <laughs> There's that. Can't forget that. We have given, we have forgotten the intimacy with which we used to exist with the bees. Have you heard about the old European practice of telling the bees? When a major change happened in a family, someone would go out to the family beehives and let them know what had happened as a token of respect. They'd say, little brownies, little brownies, your master is dead. Or if there was a wedding, the hives would be given a piece of the wedding cake. We humans have always been sensible enough to honor and respect our bees until now. If we see them solely as pollination services, if we are dosing them with chemicals, both purposefully and accidentally, if we are forcing them to live in houses of plastic or dirty wax, if we are denying the queens their mating flights in favor of artificial insemination, if we are hauling them around the country in semis, if we are feeding them corn syrup to keep them alive between pollination gigs, well, is it any wonder that they are leaving us? To switch to a less mystical tone, I'll also note that we did not talk about colony collapse disorder, and that is something that people often ask us about. It's encouraging that worry for the bees is so widespread that people who have no interest whatsoever in pretty much anything else we do light up when we mention bees, and they always ask about colony collapse disorder or CCD. Personally, I think this speaks to that ancient link between bees and man. It's still there. We still care at a very basic level. But anyway, Eric and I don't know what's causing CCD. There's a rush to point to a single culprit, like neonic pesticides. And no doubt those are horrible. 
But you know, if we ban those, the farmers will switch to another chemical, which will be just as bad, if not worse. I think it more likely that CCD is systemic. It's the result of hundreds of tiny pressures, the death of a thousand cuts. It is a warning sign that our industrial agriculture system is unsustainable. Onto my string of disasters. There was a moral to that tale of woe. The moral is that when you're sick, you've got to respect that and take it easy. And that is so hard to do. And I know between work and family, it's often impossible to do. But here's one suggestion that might help. If you're ambulatory, still up and around, not confined to bed, seek out nature. Science, science with a capital S, has proven that a walk in nature boosts the immune system. It doesn't even have to be a nice day. Just being out in the fresh air and under trees for a while does wonders for the body and the spirit. So even if you can't spend a day in bed, take an hour for yourself and take a walk in the park or go park by a lake or take a walk on the beach or just lean against a pine and you'll be surprised by how much this helps. And finally, in our discussion of the disasters, Eric apologized for being so cranky when he discovered that I had forgotten to bake his loaf of bread. And I just wanted to be clear for those of you with active imaginations that he did not yell at me or anything like that. He never does. He just made this sort of pained noise when he saw the bread bubbling up over the edges of the pan. His general crankiness, which arose from attending the beekeeping convention and a lack of food, uh, not my sins, was directed in no particular direction and was soon solved by a snack and a trip to the gym. So on that, we will close. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591. That's just a place to leave a message. You don't actually have to talk to us. Or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are at Root Simple on Twitter. And if you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. You can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books or actually any book through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein and additional music is by Roe. Thank you for listening. <laughs>